Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, as mysterious illnesses mount, what we know and don't know about e-cigarettes and vaping. It's not just a vapor, it's actually an aerosol with droplets of particulates that are being inhaled. Plus, school districts across the state have new homework, creating rules for administering medical cannabis. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Our line opinion panel will talk about the new medical marijuana guidelines handed to school districts by the state and a court decision that is poised to open New Mexico's medical marijuana program to out-of-state residents. With recent warnings from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the headlines, we're digging deep on vaping this week. We also remember the former Supreme Court Justice Charles Daniels, who died too soon this week at age 76. We begin with a New York Times article shining an unflattering spotlight on the Carlsbad Medical Center, which aggressively sues patients who owe money for hospital bills. Welcome to the Line Opinion Panel, our group of four people who have all agreed to study the news each week and sit down with us to offer their insight. We start this week with Laura Beale's article for the New York Times in which she detailed Carlsbad Medical Center's practice of suing its patients a lot. Since 2015, the Times found the hospital has filed more than 3,000 lawsuits and 500 already this year. Joining us this week, we have two new line regulars, both familiar faces, but now committed to more frequent appearances. Former state senator and line regular Dee Dee Feldman. And another regular and former state senator, Diane Snyder, is back with us. They're joined by Ed Perea. He's a lawyer and public safety expert. And we're pleased to have Julianne Grimm, editor of the Santa Fe Reporter. Now, Dee Dee, you were the one who put this on our radar. Uh, this story was shocking. I mean, you're talking folks that have... I would say, you know, medical bills that are not hundreds of thousands of dollars at first, but they become that as they get sued endlessly over and over. What's the deal here? Why are we suing so many people in New Mexico who clearly don't have the means to pay? What, what's the angle here for this hospital and others like it? Well, the hospitals are trying to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, they're using... Um and of course, the deductibles and copays have gone nice. up. That's right. Uh, there's still a lot of uninsured people out there in rural New Mexico, and mm -hmm. the hospitals are the only games in town. That's right. Uh, in places like Carlsbad and Portales and um, and Roswell, to some degree. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're shifting. They're, they're shifting. Cost shifting is the name of the game right. for hospitals right. because they get paid one rate by Medicare, one rate by Medicaid, <laughs> and then who knows what the private companies are, are paying them because their contracts are not transparent. The one thing they can do is, is gouge their patients, mm -hmm. particularly those that are least able to pay, those without insurance. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been happening. Um, even though this is illegal, according to the Affordable Care Act, That's right. um, and um, there's no enforcement there, mm -hmm. and so the hospital is doing what it can get away with, it seems to me, and then when they're called upon it, oh, then they back down a little bit. They back down a little bit and say, okay, well, for people um, uh, who make less than $19,000 a year, uh, we won't, we won't uh, come after them with right. bill collectors right. and garnishments and so on. Well, isn't that nice of them? 
if it hadn't been for the press and if it hadn't been um, for advocates demanding more transparency, mm -hmm. they'd be doing it again and again, and they probably will yep. try to do it again and There's again. No doubt. You know, Ed, I want to read you a quote here. Didi touched on this just okay. a little bit. It's endemic of the prob the bigger problem that we have here. Here's the quote from Melissa Sugg. She's a spokeswoman for Carlsbad Medical Center. The majority of accounts from which we seek to collect payment are patients with insurance who have not fulfilled their deductible copayment or coinsurance responsibilities set by their health insurance plan. This deductible thing is killing people. Do you know what I mean? It is absolutely killing people. You got a five to six thousand dollar deductible out of pocket. That's just not going to work for a lot of New Mexicans. You see, see the problem here. So we got the hospitals on one side and the patients on the other, and this big mess in the middle. It's just not working the way it is. Well, you, you know, and insurance companies are are trying to manage their own liabilities, and they're they're there to make to make a profit. Mm -hmm. So what they're looking at, you know, they're they're trying to make healthcare affordable while coming through the door. Right. But then, and and most people aren't thinking about that emergency. They're not thinking about that situation where they need healthcare. They're looking at the bottom line. What is going to be my monthly payment? And the lower they make that monthly premium, right. the That's more right. attractive the policy can be. It's yep. not until there's an emergency or emergency surgery or something of this sort mm -hmm. that they realize, that, oops, they signed up for a $10,000 deductible or $20,000 deductible. And then what insurance companies are doing as well. And when you're signing up for that insurance, you're, you're not thinking about this, That's but right. they're putting caps on coverage. Yep. So you think, I have insurance, I am covered, That's and right. suddenly before you know it, you've exceeded that cap and you have a huge deduct deductible. And most average people don't plan for that. And it really does put the, mm -hmm. put the patient in a tough situation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, it adds sort of insult to that literal injury. You go to the hospital with an injury and suddenly you get the bill and now you're insulted. Right. Insult to injury. The interest is the salt in the wound. There right. you go. And exactly. so it, it, it becomes it becomes yeah. a, a shock. I mean yeah. it's I think it's a it's a system problem. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a national problem and now it's it's bleeding over, so to speak, into into New Mexico. That's right. And we're seeing more and more lawsuits, of course, we always want to know well, what's behind this change of business model. There was a time that right. hospitals would work with the patients to right. try to find that, whether it's mediation That's or right. you know some other levels. Now it sounds to me like in some cases they're shooting straight to litigation. Mm -hmm. So, Well, Julianne, uh, uh, it was mentioned by Didi that the folks have made a change there at the hospital. They're not going to charge, I'm looking at something here, they are no longer going to sue patients who in, whose incomes are below 150% of the federal poverty level, or roughly, as Didi mentioned, 19 grand a year for a single person. Why isn't that the, the way we do it here across the board? Well, I find that there's a common thread in this story that we're talking about from the New York Times. You know, National Public Radio did a story about this, a totally different hospital. Their story was about a hospital in Virginia. Mm -hmm. In both cases, the hospitals refused to really explain themselves, and then they came out with this, oh, we're going to change our ways. And, and I was wondering, and I'm glad that Didi brought this up, are they doing this? Are they making this decision because they're embarrassed? Mm -hmm. Are they doing this because they just didn't realize what the effect of their practices were? I mean, right. it seems disingenuous. Right. And um, you know, the, the fact that there's a lack of national record keeping and national data about this um, puts a state like New Mexico and a rural community like Carlsbad in a particularly vulnerable situation. Um, I'm curious about all the rest of the New Mexico hospitals. You know, I wonder mm -hmm. if there's a way for the legislature to study this. I'm sure there are journalists 
all over New Mexico who are now looking, mm -hmm. you know, at more of this in detail because we don't have the resources of the New York Times That's to right. do that That's kind right. of research. But I know people in Santa Fe want to know what's happening with Presbyterian and Christus. I know there are um, communities like Taos, um, communities like Española that really have one medical facility. Um, mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. no, it's not the way it should be. That's I think right. it was your original question. That's right. No, you, you <laughs> nailed it. Please, believe me. You know, Diane, interesting, uh, Julianne mentioned local stuff. The Department of Health here mm -hmm. actually has a website that lists the Medicaid price for nine common procedures. But more interestingly, there's funding to start tracking what people with individual or employer-sponsored insurance pay. To start tracking that, Julianne just sort of brushed by that just now. Is that a good start for you? Or should we be being a, something a little more robust here, given the problems that this article has uh, I, unearthed? I think any step forward is is a good thing. Okay. I, what I'm concerned about is that we, you have to have all the pieces. You can't just have this one we're talking about. Right. We have to know what insurance companies are having as deductibles. Uh, uh, what is each hospital? The the problem goes back to is mm -hmm. rural New Mexico is you've only got one hospital in town, mm -hmm. and if you've got need to go to an emergency room, you don't have a choice, mm -hmm. and then you end up with uh, a bill of fifteen hundred dollars, and your deductibles three thousand. So you're between a rock and a hard place. You can't pay either one of them, mm -hmm. and so it leaves our people in a very serious. Uh, Position. Let, let me read something to you, and I want to get sure. your reaction than others about possibly a legislative fix here. Uh, it, from the article, again, about the Carlsbad uh, Medical Center. In May, a nationwide survey by the Rand Corporation found that private insurers paid Carlsbad Medical Center five times more than Medicare would have paid for the same services. Right. right. Wow. Five times. See, this is where I think the legislature could step in. You see what I'm getting at here? It sounds to me like it, the hospital's overcharging to start with. Yes. Right. Big time. Because over. they're ma trying to make up for the losses that they have yeah, in right. Medicaid and Medicare. So Right, and yeah. so when, when, a, when an insurance company negotiates a contract with a hospital, then they're having to understand that that's what they're doing. That's right. Is it's they're having to pick up the cost. Impossible as a consumer of medical services, whether you're having a you know kidney stone procedure mm -hmm. or you're having um, something very serious and on a very emergency level, you can't find out how much is this going yes, to cost me. Right. Yes, that's you right. can. You know, but when you ask them, I've personally tried to do this, then the bills come, it's a different amount that's than what right. they told that's you. Right. It the takes six, eight, ten months a year. That's By right. that time you're in collections. Right. It's such a nightmare that's for exactly the consumer. Right. That's always going to happen, but there are states that have, have addressed this. Mm -hmm. In Pennsylvania, in Maryland, they have a robust system of hospital report cards. And and the hospital report cards uh, are based on something called an all-payer claims database, which is what we're moving toward, finally. I've twice tried to sponsor this in the legislature. We've been moving. It's taken us 10 years to get this far. Uh, but uh, you have to have, for the consumer, a report card that shows not just that the, a knee replacement in one hospital costs 30000 and 3000 in another hospital, but you also need the quality measures. How successful are they in various hospitals? Uh, what's the hospital readmission rate for some of these procedures? So that consumers can, can, and ideally in New Mexico, it should be posted on the Sunshine Portal 
Uh, it should be a government function where mm -hmm. the information is given to the mm -hmm. health department. Um, it's just been really murder to get that information. And Dee, the complaints that I hear are once you get the Real bill, quick, Ed, if you the, the burden falls on the on the customer to undo or to correct, and then that's an uphill battle. That's so that's, right. that's that's something else within the this system. This is why people are going to Mexico for medical services. This yeah. is why it's yes. crazy. We'll have to leave that there. But speaking of hospitals, emergency rooms have seen a spike in lung illnesses that medical experts think are related to vaping. We dig in next. Well, the state's got itself into a pickle here. There's a problem with supply and demand. Right. There's yes. already this false cap, you know, on how much medicine each producer can um, produce. The patients have gone from 10,000 patients in 2014 to more than 70,000 patients yes. now. The state has not increased the number of producers. They haven't allowed their producers to grow what they believe they need in order to provide the medicine their patients need. Last week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a warning related to e-cigarettes and vaping. The government agency is investigating the booming industry, which is still relatively unregulated. Now, on October 17th at 7 o'clock in the evening, New Mexico PBS will air the documentary Vape. As part of that broadcast, we interview two public health experts about vaping. NMIF producer Matt Grubbs did those interviews last week. But because there's so much vaping news happening now, we're bringing one of those conversations to you now. Thank you for joining us. We are talking to a pair of public health experts about vaping. There's a documentary called Vape by Chris Schuler Productions that is coming to New Mexico PBS in October and our sister stations around the state uh, in September exploring sort of the impact and the rise of vaping. And uh, Shelly Manlev, who's a public health consultant, spent 20 years working with uh, Santa Fe Public Schools. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. You bet. And Dr. Sean Sadu, who works at the University of New Mexico as a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Thanks for coming in as well. Thank you. Um, we have talked about a lot in, in our conversation, which we'll see again for viewers this, this fall. I wanted to get with, um, you know, as we speak, it's the end of August, and um, the federal government is still sort of trying to get its arms around how to regulate what to do. Um, Shelley, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, you've said that you feel like we've been caught on our heels as a society, um, you know, from kids to parents to principals to public health experts to the federal government. Um, can you give me an overview of where we are in terms of regulation? Uh, we are not far enough is where we are in terms <laughs> of regulation. We still have flavored e-cigarettes, you know, uh, flavors like cotton candy and uh, creme brulee and, you know, mango and tropical fruit, things that are designed to appeal to children. Things you know? that have been banned in tobacco. Absolutely right. banned. Advertising that has been banned in terms of tobacco. You know, when's the last time you saw, none of you have seen tobacco advertisements on television. However, e-cigarettes can be advertised in all kinds of ways. Sponsorships, you know, there's just... For whatever, for a lot of reasons, and I think you know part of it, it. There's something called the precautionary principle, where the idea is you decide to withhold something until you know it's safe. And in the case of e-cigarettes, we've allowed the e-cigarette companies, and now all of whom are, or most of whom are owned by the big tobacco companies, to do everything without regulation, thinking that eventually the science will catch up. And we know that science is being kept quiet. Um, unfortunately, right now we are seeing a spate of serious lung diseases. Um, there are so many effects on the heart, on addiction, on you know, cancer on the body that we just don't know. 
And instead of going, this is a serious product, this is a chemical, a drug that we are, you know, it's not just a vapor, it's actually an aerosol with droplets of particulates that are being inhaled into growing lungs, right? The lungs of 11 and 12 and 13 and 15 and 18 year olds. So there's many, many reasons to be concerned, but our government's bodies, I think, have been you know, partly overwhelmed by the corporate interests, as often is the case, and have been hesitant to take strong steps, measures, um, without having years of data and long-term results take a long time to get. Dr. Sidhu, to what extent do you think can the public health community um, drive perhaps the need for regulation or the science behind those regulations? With, with cases like these, you know, 200 serious lung illnesses coming up, I would imagine if we could sort of capitalize on uh, just the public health concern and, and, and show people like, look, there actually are some serious things happening and we're not even sure what it is, the CDC is investigating it, that potentially that could be a way to, to, to have more of an advocacy effort. Um, you know, going back to the, the other point about, about marketing is that um, you know, Juul and other other e-cigarette companies are, are marketing on Snapchat, Instagram, things that potentially uh, parents may not be on or be aware of. And so social media advertising is something that's different, potentially less regulated than television marketing, which may be more regulated. And, uh, you know, a lot of these concerns are that kids are able to access, buy these sorts of things online without proper identification, without checks and balances. So, it, so it's not as if a kid is walking into uh, a store and sort of with a false ID and, and getting these. They could be getting them from friends, but they could also just be getting them online without much in terms of checks and balances that way. And this is, um, was it Jewel who just sort of voluntarily said, hey, guess what, we're going to um, not let people under 21 or 18. Right, we're going to have better checks. Okay. Right. And Juul, in fact, which is the largest distributor and seller of e-cigarettes, has also voluntarily agreed to do a number of things, and they're promoting that you can't buy these devices unless you're 21. But I think one of the things that we should all know from our history of big tobacco, um, you cannot trust the tobacco companies to do right by us. You, I mean, they have their profits that are at stake are so great that you know they are doing these I think more as public relations events. Um, the laws that ban sales to 21 do not have a huge impact. In fact, unfortunately, often they make things even more appealing to our teens when something is banned. We need as a nation and as particularly I think our adults to recognize that ingesting substances, especially through the lungs, in a vapor, through a heated coil, something heated and taking in, is something to be considered and taken very seriously. And we want our parents to know this is not a benign device. This is not something that's not, you know, not only is it going to cause a nicotine addiction for a lifetime. I mean, our kids, when you're 13 and 14, you get addicted to nicotine so much faster than you did if you were to start something, pick something up at 26 because of the developing brain, that this is something that we want to help our children make the best decisions about. Uh, be aware that they are being influenced. Even ask them, you know, you talk about talking to your kids. What kind of ads are you seeing about e-cigarettes? You know, what do you know? And then the other piece we need to be aware of is we have no idea what they are inhaling and that there's more and more inhaling of high concentrated THC. And it seems like that is uh, particularly dangerous in terms of immediate and acute illness. And I want to pick up the, the drug aspect of it. First, the, from the 
you know, Shelly mentioned it's easier for kids to get addicted um, to nicotine, but the, the damage, the potential damage from vaping, um, drawing not just the nicotine, but whatever else is in that into your lungs, um, is that more acute for children? Yeah, it could potentially be. It's hard to say. Okay. But there, there's a lot of data out there. Sometimes folks will say, well, if you're vaping, at least there's not all of the other stuff that you burn with tobacco, and therefore it's safer. Right. Uh, but nicotine in and of itself is not a safe compound. Even if we were just to ingest pure nicotine on its own, it causes more mutations in cells, which mutations can lead to cancer. Um, and it also causes vasoconstriction, the nicotine itself. So that means our arteries get smaller. So that can damage all of our end organs, which is like heart, lungs, kidney, liver, stuff like that. Um, and then all of the sort of dental gum disease, uh, tooth decay, that's all because the nicotine itself is causing those blood vessels to clamp down. So you have dry mouth uh, and your, blood, your, your teeth don't get enough oxygen. So all of that small blood vessel damage that is associated with tobacco would be any product that has nicotine in it. Okay. Uh, and naturally, the, the younger you are when your body and your brain are still developing and you're using these harmful compounds, um, it's not going to be safe. One thing for parents to know is, you know, if the parents themselves are vaping, right, now children are seeing it, is it being modeled? And so at least if the parents know this is not safe for my developing child, and uses the same precautions that they would use for secondhand smoke, such as smoking outside of the home or outside. What, I mean, at least that's some, some progress. Whereas if we're vaping in the home or, you know, uh, hopefully not offering vaping to the children or just not really monitoring it, then the kids have access and there's not really a concern about it because someone in the family is using it. Okay. Let's, let's finish up with this concept of modeling. Is that a, is that a strong sort of pathway for influencing kids? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Regardless uh, of the behavior, I'm assuming. But. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily have to be parents. It can be any concerned adult. It could be a teacher, uh, a little league coach, a pastor at church, any sort of concerned adult that actually takes an interest in a child. And sort of um, that child will then say, okay, this person cares about me. Now I'm going to listen to what they're starting, sort of saying. Uh, and having that open dialogue we were talking about with the kids, that probably is the greatest driver of change. Okay, okay. And schools, it seems like, are, are waking up to this in, in large part. Unfortunately, schools are being forced to wake up to this a lot sooner than everybody else because uh, the amount of time that principals and deans and assistant principals are having to spend, you know, a vast majority of the substance use violations on campuses are e-cigarette violations. Um, it is an opportunity for schools because I think Many of the young people who are using e-cigarettes need support. They need help. They need a chance to be educated, not just about e-cigarettes, to be screened for mental health issues, possibly to get positive supports and activities in their lives. So there's a program funded by the state called 24-7 New Mexico that is working with schools to strengthen their policies, but also to provide supportive, healthy interventions, right, that really help these young people who unfortunately may be on a path that's not heading them in a good place, but really with, with the proper support, with mentoring, with education and uh, re-engagement in school, that they can actually have a better life. That's a great point, if I could piggyback on it. Um, alternative peer groups are huge in, in, in adolescent substance use, so what that means is a lot of times the kids don't want to give up the substances because that means they have to give up their friend group. Oh, okay. And sure. so an alternative peer group basically means that you're organizing a peer group 
where there's a premise that everybody there is drug-free, but they're still doing really fun things. They're going bowling, they're going hiking, uh, they're playing sports together. So now all of a sudden you have a group of friends, and so you're not isolated and you're not lonely, and you don't have to use to do fun things. So, so it could be anything, just sort of getting kids more engaged in life, engaged in their community, engaged in school. Uh, those are all ways to get away from the substance. Substance usually goes along with isolating. Sometimes it could be self-medicating uh, a mental health issue, in which case getting them treated, getting them to therapy, family therapy, if, that, if there's some conflict at home or okay. if there's a history of abuse. So there's all kinds of things where our mental and emotional, you could even say spiritual health, health is tied into substance use. And the more you work on those other factors as well, there may not be this draw that I have to escape through this chemical, that I, my life is actually worth living as a life in and of itself, and I don't need to run away from it. Sean Sadu, Shelly Manlev, thank you both for your work and for agreeing to come in here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Once again, Vape airs Thursday, October 17th at 7 p.m. on New Mexico PBS. So how does the state regulate vaping and e-cigarettes, and what's on the horizon? Here's producer Matt Grubbs again with the New Mexico Department of Health's David Tompkins. How much can the state do to get its arms around the rise of vaping and e-cigarettes? David Tompkins manages community health initiatives for the State Department of Health's Tobacco Use and Prevention and Control That's Program. Great. That's yes. a, as we said, long title. Long title. <laughs> uh, well, we know vaping is on your radar. Um, what does the state do right now? Uh, right now, we're uh, working in conjunction with CDC. Obviously, there's a lot of news going on right now about uh, some of the pulmonary issues that are starting to be recognized around vaping. Uh, so we are in very uh, serious contact with the CDC at this point, um, looking at this from an epidemiological standpoint, um, doing some interviews, uh, long kind of questionnaires with folks who have been hospitalized uh, with the um, belief that this is vaping related, trying to put together that information to really look at what's going on here. Um, we're a part, uh, this is also happening in 20 other states right now, I think. So it's a, you know, kind of a national response to uh, something that we were not looking forward to, you know. Uh, we sure. didn't uh, really believe that this was going to be so uh, immediate and um, start to really recognize what's going on here. Um, one of the things that, that Shelly Manlev, our uh, public health expert that we um, just spoke with, said, she talked about the precautionary principle, um, this idea that you figure out if something is safe and then you sort of put it on the market. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that happens with, with drugs, certainly. What, what's happening with that? Uh, that's not happened in this case. Um, there are some uh, regulations that were proposed, um, but at this time, uh, yeah, the products came out onto the market before they were really fully studied. And, uh, you know, we, we take a look at cigarettes and combustible cigarettes and, this, you know, they were on the market before anybody realized what was going on with those. Uh, and it took a long time to, to bring that information, to gather the data and to make the connections that these products are killing people. Um, and they're still on the market. So, I, you know, I mean, it's, this has a lot to do with, uh, obviously, with um, you know, corporate influence, with uh, societal norms that we were taught 
through very uh, well-developed advertising by the tobacco industry. Um, so we've kind of normalized tobacco. Uh, we don't respond to it in a way that would make sense if it were uh, introduced today. Uh, if somebody came up and said, okay, we're going to introduce a new product to uh, the people of this country. It's a product that will kill close to one out of two people who use it as intended. There's no way that that would make it onto the market. Um, but we're in it. We're used to it. It's a, it's a part of our societal norm. Uh, that's changing. You know, cigarette use is certainly dropping as people become more and more understanding of what's really going on there. Uh, it becomes less desirable. Uh, we've had some good policy efforts. We know what works. Um, and we've been applying it to combustible cigarettes and other tobacco products for uh, years now since the uh, settlement with the tobacco industry, which sure. funds our program and um, provides us with that opportunity to uh, make a difference in communities and in public health. When it comes to vaping, um, what we hear so often is that this is something that um, helps adults quit smoking. Um, there are products out there that the state provides that, that do that, Surely. Um, that, are, that are tested. <clears throat> what does vaping do? Do you know yet? We don't really know yet. Okay. Um, you know, this is that case again where it came onto the market before it's been studied. Um, and the industry, the tobacco industry and the vaping industry set that narrative. Um, they have been uh, advertised as a way to quit. Um, we don't have evidence that says that that's absolutely true. Okay. Uh, we look at it today, yes, there is the potential for e-cigarettes to help an adult established smoker quit using combustible products and hopefully quit nicotine altogether. Uh, but again, these products are not FDA approved. We do have FDA approved products for uh, cessation, patch, gum, lozenge. Uh, those have been around for years. They've been studied. Uh, they're effective. Um, in the state of New Mexico, we offer those products free uh, through our quit line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW and uh, De Halo Ya. Uh, so we have English and Spanish um, okay. telephone lines and computer uh, internet um, access to those services. Okay. Uh, but they do include appropriate use of FDA real, uh, approved products and, you know, they're free. This is, you know, if somebody really wants to quit, there we have that in place for people here in New Mexico. Okay. Um, do you have a sense of what the conventional wisdom is for the public um, when it comes to vaping? What it does? What you know? <clears throat> We're learning every day, okay. obviously. Sure. Um, we certainly know that uh, nicotine in any form is, is something that should not be used by youth, by young adults, by uh, non-established adult smokers and certainly not by pregnant women. So we, we know that, we know nicotine has uh, harm to those particular populations. Um, so we have to you know, recognize that. We try to get that word out and help people to have understanding of what nicotine really means uh, in order to uh, make good decisions for themselves. 
Um, at this time, you know, these products are really, they're not regulated. They're not regulated the same way that combustible cigarettes are. Uh, advertising is not regulated. Uh, what's actually in the product is not regulated. Um, interesting uh, that uh, even as we look at the products and as FDA looks at the products, they look initially at what's in the product we're just finding out what comes out of the product after it's heated, after it's mixed with flavorings, after it is uh, ingested into the lungs. Uh, all those cause chemical reactions and changes. And so we can say, you know, here, yes, here's our list of ingredients that go into this product. But that's not necessarily what the user is inhaling. Um, so, so that's an issue. Uh, we are really concerned, our, our major concern right now is what's happening with youth. Okay. Obviously, uh, flavored products are a way of marketing to youth. There's no question about that. We we know that today, uh, and uh, but we're not again not really regulating that. We are concerned very much that even with combustible cigarettes, 90% of the uh, adult smokers today started using those products before the age of 18. 90%. 90%. Um, we see something even stronger happening with e-cigarettes uh, and uh, you, you take flavors and you take a, a, an addictive chemical like nicotine you put them together and really what comes out of that is uh, pediatric addiction and that's that is our biggest issue right now that we're really trying to look at. Uh, we know what nicotine does to the developing brain it, it, it changes the way that the brain uh, learns, uh, attention. Um, it's also, uh, we're recognizing that in the developing brain, which is up till age 25, uh, that it also uh, trains the brain for other addictions. And so this, uh, you know, we talk a lot about many of the other addictions that are going on um, with urgency, and uh, they are minimal compared to what's being taking place with nicotine and nicotine addiction. Uh, not to say that they're not important, they absolutely are, but when we take a look at how do we prevent some of those other addictions that are more likely to show up in adulthood, we can trace it back to training the brain in adolescence to become addicted to other drugs, and nicotine does that. That term, pediatric addiction, mm -hmm. that really sort of, it shocks you. We don't think about it that way. Yeah. Again, we've been, we've been taught by an industry how to think about and how to, uh, uh, you know, look at these tobacco products. Um, we're looking, you know, combustible tobacco killing over 440,000 people a year. That's insane when you think about it, um, that that product is still allowed on the market. Uh, if we had any other product that was doing that, it would be regulated off the market, would be taken off. We, either we need to study it or we need to just accept this is a deadly product. So. David Tompkins, we thank you for your time. We know you have a lot of work to do, and we thank you for that, too. Uh -huh. All right. Um, here we go. A series of articles by the Albuquerque Journal's Shelby Perea helped to spur the legislature to change the law to allow students who have been prescribed medical cannabis to get their treatment on school grounds. Now, while that law passed last winter, the state just finished finalizing its rule, which requires school districts to adopt their own policies within state guidelines. And Julianne, 
While all this is being worked out, and it took a while, students are still getting pushed back from districts. Could the state have done a little bit of, of a better job here? It, it, it just seems like the timeline Oh, folks certainly. Here. I'm so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> right? I mean, you've got the um, the PED is responsible for taking this law uh, from the legislature and promulgating some rules about it so that the districts have time to uh, get ready for the upcoming school year. Mm -hmm. And so here we are in September, right. and the districts are still trying to um, make policies about you know a law that was signed by the governor in April. Mm -hmm. um, I know that in, in terms of how long things typically take in the government, that's not a long amount of time. In terms of how quickly things happen in the industry I work in, right. That's a long time, you know, and I think uh, it can't help but wonder if the, you know, uh, governor's displeasure with the PED secretary had anything, you know, to do. Was this one of the things that she wasn't moving fast enough about? Um, that's pure speculation on my part, but, you know, when you have a big change at the yep. top, it slows down right. a lot of things, so. Yeah, I think you're quite right about that, actually. Mm -hmm. Your thought on that, Diane, you know, again, you know, time, timing is tricky. The folks, as my read on it, the districts were starting to do a little bit of work, but they can only do so much before they get the final, final word. And we're not even going to have a final word here in, a in Albuquerque until September 11th right. is when the next meeting is to well, finalize all And school's been in session for six weeks. Right. So you wonder, uh, you know. Is and, it fair to the parents? No, it isn't. Kids? And particularly uh, because the way it, it reads is that the parent has to come and pro do provide the treatment. Let's talk about that. That it cannot yeah. be... Uh, anyone at the school doing it. And so they're saying is that needs to be looked at so far as, but then every school doesn't have a school nurse either. The state law says that they can designate someone. It doesn't say it can't be a school member, a school board staff. I'm, is that but, correct? I think so. I mean, I think but they I'm could okay. say that I they could so. say it's the school nurse that but, does this or it's the, you know. But they, listen, it's not easy dealing with the school nurses. Mm. But Have you been yeah. to one lately? <laughs> yeah. So. I think Julianne has it right, though. But, but, but it makes a point. I'm sorry. I'm staying with I was you. Just gonna it say, makes a point. The nurses are having a little cold feet about this. They're having cold feet. Mm -hmm. they, they, they didn't increase their liability insurance. They're not covered mm -hmm. for doing this. I mean, where does where does this get, go into the yeah. safety in, uh, of the professional? Right. Professional. Part the other part of this too is storage. There's an issue about storage on on campus that uh, the schools and some of the school nurses are a little tr not so great well, about school, this idea. School so. nurse offices are just got a simple little lock right. on the front door. And I mean, people, people can people, get in there and kids. steal it. That's right. Uh, it's a real complicated process. Mm -hmm. But back to the Please. the timeline. Mm -hmm. That that's silly. Mm -hmm. I mean, April to September, they could have had. I believe they could have had more in place and more guidelines ready because you're talking then on top of that mm -hmm. okay maybe APS has done one thing maybe Carlsbad school district's done another and then suddenly the the public education department comes out with the guideline that now they have to revise theirs mm -hmm. and here it is the student who our patient and the parent is having to fight with this the whole time and the whole That's way. Right. Right. So I just think they could have been a little more timely. I'm hearing that right. loud and clear. You know, Ed, you know, I, you can't help but think about the parents. We'll go back to the parents for a quick sec. One of the fellows into, uh, interviewed in one of the articles, I forget which one, said, look, I have a full-time job. Right. I can't run down to the school three times a day to admit, as, admit this to my child. There's got to be a halfway meeting of the minds here. Will we eventually get there? Is this just the first little bumpy 
start here? Do you feel like we can get there a little? Well, we hope so. Unfortunately, and going yeah. back to our, our previous topic, this is just a, such a litigious society, right? It, everyone is concerned, school personnel are concerned, the nurses are concerned, right. the, the, the school district is concerned about litigation. That's right. If they provide this medication to, to a child and, and, and there is some negative outcome as a result of that, you know, they're very concerned about it. So I think there's the schools taking sort of the, the hands off, the, the least involvement possible, but it does have an impact on those parents who mm -hmm. are trying to make ends meet or have these, these, these jobs that don't allow them the flexibility to go into school. Mm -hmm. And as you know, one of the articles pointed out, there, this gentleman's child needed to be medicated multiple times during the course of the day. Mm -hmm. right. And you know, that really puts the parent, the child, and even the, the peers in the, in the classroom right. in, in kind of a tough position. That's right. Because, you know, there may be some acting out behavior. There may be a lot of interruptions to the, the, to the school day to point, try yeah. to deal with that issue. Yep, exactly right. Hey, the second part of this conversation for us is Santa Fe District Court Judge Brian Beachide. His decision that a rewrite to the state's medical marijuana law opens the program to out-of-state residents. And Didi, the judge said the rewritten law, quote, plain, plainly and unambiguously does away with the requirement of residents, end quote. There's gotta be some upshot here. What, what do you think, the, the, are there positives, are there negatives? Right, your gut reaction to that, well, it's no, interesting keep, ruling. I think, keep in mind, we're talking about medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about recreational marijuana. Mm -hmm. So this will mean that patients who need medical marijuana mm -hmm. can come across the Texas border, Texas-New Mexico border, let's say, mm -hmm. and if they are qualified mm -hmm. by the New Mexico Department of Health, they can purchase, um, purchase a medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. It, it immediately will mean more customers for the, for the medical marijuana mm -hmm. salespeople. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of the big uh, advocates of this was one of the largest, um, largest um, owners and growers of medical marijuana in the state. Uh, one of the litigants, we should probably say. Uh, Duke Rodriguez. Well, right, exactly right. Actually, former uh, former human secretary. That's human right. Human services secretary. <laughs> now living so, in Arizona. Yeah. Now, you're right. Yeah, but okay. So, uh, uh, and I think the governor is really resisting this. The governor is resisting this as a misinterpretation of the law. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not so sure whether this resistance is really warranted. I'm not sure... Um, you know, uh, what, what the harm is. Right. Well, the state's got itself into a pickle here. There's a problem with supply and demand. Right. There's yes. already this false cap, you know, on oh, how much medicine much. each producer can um, produce. The patients have gone from 10,000 patients in 2014 to more than 70,000 patients yes. now. The state has not increased the number of producers. They haven't allowed their producers to grow what they believe they need in order to provide the medicine their patients need. And so I can't help but wonder if the governor's stance about it is really more about protecting these previous decisions. We want a plant cap. We want to limit production. Um, it, it makes me think about other medicine, though. You know, would we say, like, let's not produce any more, you know, antacid because 
of some mm -hmm. artificial constraint. Like let's only, you know, have enough of it like what we think is enough. It, it just seems like a whole concept that needs some work in our state There's medical program. There's an idea that yeah. the but original plant count was just pulled out of thin air. That, right. It was. It was. Up number, but and now we're wrestling with this. So. Well, they, it was around 500. They raised right. it to 2,000, right. and now they've reduced it to 1,750. Right. And, and, yeah. and that doesn't make sense to me. We just said how much the, the patient demand has grown. And then over here sitting on the sideline is... Uh, recreational marijuana and these are going to be the same producers producing this and we discussed that at one time right. about how do we protect the medical marijuana program well if if we should go to recreational that's right, that's right. Ed, is there any law enforcement bounce here I can't, I can't think of one myself but do you, any concerns about having out-of-state holders of medical cards here in, in New Mexico and no I don't see any okay. as a matter of fact I, I think it's probably a, a positive for law enforcement to be able to identify those individuals who are in this state gotcha. and, and using cannabis could be a problem when they go home though don't you think yeah. when they cross that line back into Texas right. sure. I, mean, mm -hmm. I mean there are some some other issues right if we don't allow the card here and they have the cannabis here they may run into some legal issues themselves but if we're just trying to have access to medicine but, that they need so mm -hmm. I, I don't see I don't see a negative mm -hmm. uh, but wasn't the there an issue about buying loading up your car with it and then taking it back across the border I mean, you're getting it legally in, in Colorado. Right. This was in Colorado. Mm -hmm. You get it legally in Colorado, and then you're heading back into Nebraska with it. So, are you talking if, about recreational marijuana, or are you talking about medical marijuana? And there are some I think I'm talking about both at this point, because yeah. it started out, you had to qualify for medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. but they, still they, do. Right, but you, but you, in Colorado is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But you still could load your car up, could come and qualify and get whatever amount, and it was much higher amounts than what we have in New Mexico. But it's always tricky crossing state lines. Yeah. The jurisdictional questions about whether the cards apply, you know, whether your California card is good and keeps you safe when you're in New Mexico, yeah. that's really the issue that um, this ruling doesn't even address that. Yeah. Um, and that's more of, I think, what you're asking and, about. And Gene, this is an easy fix, right? There's a legislative fix, right? We just need to be patient. Take a look at the issues. We knew there were going to be issues that come up, sure. right, as soon as this came out. Sure. So now we're dealing with some of those issues. Get it back before the, the legislature. I think the judge was correct in his decision. I think mm -hmm. the statute was pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there may be some constitutional issues that arise if you try to prevent out-of-state people from obtaining a, a medical card right. here in New Mexico. So right. I think there's some broader issues. I think the judge made the, the right decision, but I think think the legislature now has to come in and either clarify their decision or modify the statute so that it, it, there's clear understanding. It boils down to whether that was the legislative intent or not. That's right. good Did point. they intend intent. to That's remove right. that, that Excellent requirement? Excellent point right. there. That's why we love having state senators. <laughs> there you go. I love that. Very good We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we remember Justice Charlie Daniels. New Mexico in Focus is on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us online to get updates on upcoming shows and tell us what you think about the top news stories of the week. Then tune in because we may share your comments on the line. We're back at the line table with this week's line opinion panel. Former Supreme Court Justice Charles W. Daniels passed away recently eight months after retiring from the bench and barely two months after being diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. In a statement, current Chief Justice Judith Nakamura said, quote, our state has lost a titan of the law. From humble roots as the son of sharecroppers, Justice Daniels grew into a towering figure as an attorney and jurist who for a half century tenaciously, tenaciously defended our constitutional rights 
and advance equal justice under the law. That's a wonderful quote. Ed, this is a man who clearly impacted this legal community and then far outside of it. I want to take this just a little fast, just remembrances, but your, your best remembrances of him and your side of the world, you deal with the law and judges and things like that. What was your sense of, of oh, Judge Daniels? That's right. I, mm -hmm. Justice Daniels was mm -hmm. just an incredible colleague. He was just so committed to the practice of law and so committed to improving the criminal justice system here in New Mexico. The, right. the multiple conversations that I had with him were just so insightful. Uh, I was president of the Albuquerque Bar Association and it was mm -hmm. great to see him attend our functions because his stature just added to, wow. to our community and, and it really is it really is such a such a big loss mm -hmm. um, the, during the time that I ran for district attorney just recently we met up at multiple community meetings where it was clear that he was an advocate for improving our criminal justice system and bail reform is, mm -hmm. is a, as a prosecutor that was very important to to how we see our role as, as prosecutors and, and enforcing the law right. charging Daniels I mean he is he's going to be missed but he's left his mark too I mean, yeah. he is in, in, in so many ways and so, so highly respected, you know, across the spectrum, whether by the community or uh, the legal profession. Mm -hmm. Good yeah, points there. Guy. Absolutely. Dee Dee had a chance to work with him, I'm sure, in a, a number of capacities. He was a very active person when it came to testifying in front of our legislature yeah. for things that he had, was strong about, as Ed just mentioned. I've always found that interesting about him. He was willing to get his, roll his sleeves up and get in there. On all levels, not mm -hmm. just at, not just in the legislature, but he was at community meetings. Mm -hmm. He was there mm -hmm. as a participant, not someone that was looking down from on high. Mm -hmm. He was uh, mixing it up. He was listening to what was going on out there in the community, whether mm -hmm. it came to guardianship, when it came to... I mean, he was a uh, criminal justice lawyer, and he was a civil rights attorney. He mm -hmm. was a mentor. He was a law professor. He was really embedded in the community, and we are very, very lucky to have had him mm -hmm. um, because he has, as you say, I think he has really left his mark on the community and, you know, befitting our community that you're not just a great judge, uh, but you're also a race car driver. You're also a bass, mm -hmm. uh, a bass right, guitarist right. Right. in right. a band that's that right. we right. dance to. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's a small state, and and that's um, that's a that's a real treasure mm -hmm. uh, for a public official. We're lucky to have had him. I'm glad you mentioned his motor racing side of him. He's getting a lot of remembrances out there from the motor racing community in New Mexico, which is pretty big. And Charlie Daniels was a big part of that too, and he it's was. very interesting. I, I'm also curious uh, from you, uh, what, what was your sense of him? It, let me ask another way. I've had a, a theory for a long time. I got this from my dad actually, that he was a grew up poor, son of sharecroppers, and that informed his view of the world from the bench. Do you see what I mean? I think people who come from humble beginnings that way, when they have to get to when they get to that level of influence. Do you feel that that helps them in how they see the world, how they make decisions? You see where I'm going at with yes, this? Yes, I, yeah. I think it helps them when they get there, but I think more importantly, it helps them to get there because of having nothing and knowing that if you're going to have anything, you have to do it yourself. And I think his, his whole intensity, I, I, I had to chuckle, I saw this in several uh, 
articles, mm -hmm. uh, the reference to him as a Renaissance man. I don't think I've ever known one except maybe Thomas Jefferson. But uh, mm -hmm. when you look at it and what he did, his whole life goes along that way. He was dedicated and absolutely sincere about his practice of law, intensely sincere. And then you come along, and, and I got to see lawyers, guns, and money back in the <laughs> old days. Had no idea that he yeah. was someday going to be the Supreme Court Justice. Right. But that enthusiasm and that excitement and that joy with which he did that. And then race car driving. Honey, you've got to have a pure <laughs> sense of abandonment That's if right. you're going to go out and race cars. That's right. And you take all of that and put that together mm -hmm. that came from his background, that came from his successes, yeah. and that came from his, as Ed said, his love of the law and the people of New Mexico. That's right. That's right. And Gene is more of a jurist. He didn't like the idea of being referred to as a judge. And maybe he saw really? himself as, as, as so much more. Uh, yeah. An incredible role as a, as a jurist, but there were so many other parts of his life. I'm glad you got that in. That's actually interesting. Yeah. yeah. Julianne, I'm curious. Um, how was he in your dealings with him with the press? Was he an open guy? Was he tough? Was oh, he, yeah, certainly. Yeah. You know, um, Jeff Proctor did a story with uh, New Mexico in depth and reveal um, about the big bail bond issue. You know, and this is, of course, what when you say things like a titan of law and you say things like a lasting legacy, this is what you're talking about. So Justice Daniels writes an opinion about a case that came before the Supreme Court in 2013 mm -hmm. in which a man who had been charged with murder was being held on a, a bond worth you know, nearly the, the value of a house. Um, and, and he took um, a real interest in that case. Um, and and you know, that was kind of the beginning of this activism and this like, we've got to do something about the bail system. Mm -hmm. It's not okay for people to sit in jail for months and years uh, while they await the achingly slow court system. Um, it's especially not okay to do that just because people don't have a means to um, come up with money mm -hmm. to get out. You know, you're not supposed to be, your guilt or innocence shouldn't also be based on your bank balance. Um, and so Justice Daniels works for years and years. You know, he, as you said, testifies before the legislature. Um, he gets, you know, a lot of static for doing that, for sticking his neck out um, and being um, sort of an activist jurist, you know, if you if you want to say that. And so when the citizens of New Mexico, when the voters, 86% of them said, we want this constitutional amendment change, I think that's some validity for his legacy. And great that he got to see that happen before yes. this disease took him from us. Absolutely. Really nice words, well said there. It's so hard to wrap these things up. A life like this, you try to consider it front to back. It's almost impossible when you think about it, how much influence one single person can have. So Ed, I want to ask you in the final question, has he given us a model for what we should expect for a Supreme Court justice in our state? Do you know what I mean? Is, is, is any woman or man who attains this position, seems to me you've got a tough act to follow at this point. So I think yeah. so, and it's mm -hmm. really all about passion. It's about passion for what you do. And, right. and he had passion for a lot of different things in life. But he had passion for the law, and he had passion for, for justice, right. and ensure that people are all treated in a fair way. And so I, I think passion is part of that, that legacy. And it's that bar that he has established for those who are following in his footsteps. That's, right. That's exactly right. Uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate that. And of course, our thoughts here at New Mexico PBS are with Justice Daniel's wife, Randy, and his family and friends.
Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. If you're not following us on Facebook for our Wednesday conversations, you're missing out. We had a great chat with the folks over at Cultivating Coders this week. Find that on our Facebook page. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.